morning, please pray with me. Father, whenever we truly disconnect from the busyness of our lives, we are profoundly struck by the beauty and grandeur of your creation and by the incredible reality that you have chosen to be in relationship with us. It is you, God, who give meaning to our lives and our existence. You who provide joy and peace and hope. Thank you, Father. We ask that you guard us from both pride and shame and lead us into humble reliance on your sovereignty, salvation, and sustenance. Attune our hearts and minds to your unshakable truth revealed through your infallible word. Jesus told us the harvest is plentiful, yet the laborers few. May we be counted among those, among them as we seek to love you and our neighbor well, and in so doing, find the true fulfillment you desire for us. What a blessing it is to come before you to worship and adore you, to confess our sin and brokenness and ask for forgiveness, and now to lay our concerns before you. Continue to comfort, surround, and sustain the Driscoll family in their time of great need. May they have a deep sense of your presence. Be with Richard and Barbara Thompson's granddaughter, Hollis, as she undergoes chemotherapy. We ask that the treatment would be effective in eradicating her cancer and that any side effects would be minimal. Help Richard and Barbara know how best to love and encourage her during this time. As Sandra Norman undergoes brain surgery this week, we ask for a successful procedure and a complete recovery. Be with Jerry as he cares for her. We also pray for all who are impacted by the outbreak of war in Israel yesterday and for the leaders who will be engaged in restoring peace. We give you thanks for our ministry partner, Christian Service Mission, and Tracy Hips here in Birmingham. Bless his efforts, partnering with local churches to not only provide for physical needs, but share the love of Christ and the gospel. We give you thanks for Henry as he comes now to preach. Bless his teaching and our hearing that we might draw closer to you and your calling for each of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Several years ago, my uh, sons and I went on a fly fishing trip to Colorado. And uh, there were a lot of preparations we made for the trip. We purchased our plane tickets. We gathered our supplies. Lots of texts going back and forth between us, talking about uh, rod lengths, uh, line weights, tippets, like what kind of flies we were going to use, nymphs, dry flies, waders, boots, uh, nets, so forth. And then, uh, and then the day came and we, we got in a plane, we flew to Denver, rented a cool looking Jeep Wrangler and drove three hours to Basalt, Colorado to fish the frying pan and the roaring fork. So the day we got there, we, uh, we started fishing about 11 in the morning and it started getting overcast pretty soon after we got into the Frying Pan River. And by about 3 p.m., there was a, a massive snowstorm, and we just had to get out of the river. So we went back to the hotel, and I was, you know, I was kind of bummed, honestly, right? I'm there with my kids. I'm there with my two, my two sons, and uh, we're fly fishing. We spent the money. We've gone out there. And 
That night, it goes down to 26 degrees. I, um, I, did, I did tie my line in the hotel room, but all retying was difficult that morning. So we get out of the river. It's 26 degrees. There's about three or four inches of snow on the ground, and I'm kind of discouraged. And we, and we get into the, the Roaring Fork River, and we just start killing them. You would be surprised how not cold you are in 28 degrees when the trout are biting. Um, we had a chance to repeat that trip the next year. It was so good, so fun. It was sort of a, a pilgrimage or a mini pilgrimage to a great place with something good at the end. In the book of Numbers, we're reading about God's people on pilgrimage, and they're going to the land of promise. They're going to a great place. And so our passage this morning uh, talks about the beginning of that journey after leaving Sinai. Let's read and hear God's word. In Numbers chapter 10, we read this. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. And the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And the cloud settled down in the wilderness of Paran. They set out for the first time at the command of Yahweh by Moses. The standard of the camp of the people of Judah set out first by their companies, and over their company was Neshon, the son of Amminadab, and over the company of the tribe of the people of Issachar was Nethanel, the son of Zuar, and over the company of the tribe of the people of Zebulun was Elab, the son of Helon. And when the tabernacle was taken down, the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who carried the tabernacle, set out. And the standard of the camp of Reuben set out by their companies, and over their company was Elazar, the son of Shadur. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Simeon was Shalumiel, the son of Zerashaddai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Gad was Elisaph, the son of Duel. Then the Kohath. Kohathites set out, carrying the holy things, and the tabernacle was set up before their arrival. And the standard of the camp of the people of Ephraim set out by their companies, and over their company was Elishama, son of Amihud. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Manasseh was Gamaliel, son of Pedazur. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Benjamin was Abidon, son of Gideonai. The standard of the camp of the people of Dan, acting as the rear guard of all the camps, sent out by their companies. And over their company was Ahazar, the son of Amishadai. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Asher was Pagiel, son of Akran. And over the company of the tribe of the people of Naphtali was Ahira, the son of Enon. This was the order of the march of the people of Israel by their companies when they set out. And Moses said to Hobab, the son of Reuel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place which Yahweh said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good to you, for Yahweh has promised good to Israel. But he said to him, I will not go, I will depart to my own land and to my kindred. And he said, please do not leave us, for you know where we should camp in the wilderness and you will serve as eyes for us. And if you do go with us, whatever good Yahweh will do to us, the same we will do to you. So they set out from the Mount of Yahweh, three days' journey. 
And the ark of the covenant of Yahweh went before them three days' journey to seek a resting place for them. And the cloud of Yahweh was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, he said, Return, O Israel, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel. All flesh is like grass, and its glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Dear people of God, the Christian life is a pilgrimage. We are on this journey directed by the Lord. Like the Israelites, they were on their way to the promised land. We are on the way to the new heavens and the new earth, a renewed creation. That's what God has in store for us. And uh, this story this morning is their setting out. What can we learn by looking at the Israelites setting out? You know, when I went fishing with my sons, they are good fly fishermen. One lives in North Carolina, one lives in Georgia, and they really know what they're doing. So I was the one asking all the questions. I needed a lot of information, a lot of help. What can we learn by looking at just this initial setting out that will help us on our pilgrimage, on our journey? Four things we're going to look at this morning. The Lord has a plan for our journey, and He is working out for our pilgrimage, and He's working out that plan in space-time history. Secondly, the Lord gives us assignments on our pilgrimage. Third, we are to be inviting other people on this pilgrimage. And lastly, the Lord is with us on our pilgrimage. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So first, the Lord has a plan for our pilgrimage, and He is working out His plan in human history. In Genesis 12, the Lord appeared to a man named Abram, whom we know as Abraham, and said to him, go from your father, your country, and your kindred, and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So God made these four promises to Abraham. He would give him a land. He would give him descendants. He would bless him and make his name great. And through the tribe of Abraham or the people of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And really, that's what the Old Testament is about. It's about God enacting that story. Uh, He has already begun to make Abraham's descendants into this great nation. The Lord gave Abraham Isaac and then To Isaac, he gave Jacob, whose name he changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. They flee to Egypt because of a famine. But God hears their cry as as they are enslaved in Egypt later on. And he hears their cry and delivers them through the Red Sea. And then they come to Sinai. And there are these wonderful transactions where God meets with his people. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. And he displays his favor to them. He makes this covenant with them. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. He gives them his law, instructs them in true religion. And now in this story this morning, he's taken those same descendants that he has been working in and he's moving them closer to the promised land. And so we read as this passage starts in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony. 
Sometimes we read the Bible and we think, boy, that's just mundane. It's just a repetition of a story. But sometimes we read it and it absolutely comes alive. This ought to thrill our hearts. In the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day, the Lord, the eternal God of all the universe, lifts the cloud and says, move, it is time. It is just so wonderful. He's directing the affairs of his people. It's such an astounding verse, really. They've been in the wilderness for almost a year, and now the cloud lifts, and uh, it's God himself initiating their departure. And so when he initiates that departure, they set out. I wonder what that was like, don't you? To be an Israelite, you've been at camp for a year, and all of a sudden, this day is different. The cloud lifts. It's time. Just what anticipation they had. We're going to the promised land. We're headed there. And so they set out the first time for the commands of, by the command of Moses. And believers in Jesus Christ, the Lord is at work in this world. The eternal God acts in this world. He works, as theologian Francis Schaeffer says, in space-time history. He comes to our world. He does things. He moves. This is the story of the whole Bible. When the Lord walked in the garden with Abraham, or with, in the garden with Adam and Eve, he was acting in the world. When the Lord appeared to Abraham, he was acting in the world. When the Lord appeared to Moses, he was acting in the world. When the Lord, when the whale swallowed Jonah, God was acting in the world. When a virgin from Israel became pregnant with, became pregnant with child without a husband, the Lord was acting in the world. When Jesus Christ walked the earth, when he healed blind people, raised people from the dead, it was God acting in the world. When he was crucified, dead, and buried, and then resurrected, God was acting in the world. When the apostle Paul was converted, God was acting in the world. And so we can rest in confidence that God is at work. So part of the message this morning is take heart, believers. Our God is alive. He is working in this world in which you and I live. And that's so important for us because we look at politicians, we look at political movements, we look at cultural movements that are going on, and sometimes we can, we can lose sight of the fact, or it becomes less clear to us that God is really working out His purposes. Interestingly, that's why global missions festivals are so fa fascinating, because we remember that He's working out His purposes throughout the world. And sometimes in the midst of our own personal stories, what the Lord do, is doing is often imperceptible to us. And we say, Lord, why this trial? Why this difficulty? Why this burden? Why this bad disease? Why this terrible thing in my family? Why this terrible thing in my life? Um, several of the men in our church are reading this book, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. And we got to the chapter on unfinished stories. And he says, as believers, we've got to pray through the unfinished stories in our life, and sometimes we simply don't know what God is doing. And one of those periods in the history of Israel, at least, was the exile. The exile, in the exile, God allowed his people to be care, caused his people to be carried into exile in Babylon, and it was such a dark period in Israel's history. Is God still working out his plan? And listen to what Paul Miller said, this is the good that came out of the exile. 
First, God used the destruction of the temple and the removal of the Israelites to Babylon to create a synagogue structure, which laid the groundwork and became the precursor of the local church. Second, the Old Testament canon was organized during this time. When they were in exile, they needed God's holy book, so they got them and they organized them all. Third, God purified Israel of mixing with other religions. They were a righteous remnant over there now. Fourth, the dispersion of the Jewish people provided a base from which Paul and others could easily spread the gospel because God's people got spread around the world. Fifth, Israel was forever purified of outward idolatry. Never would again would the Jewish people worship idols. Monotheism became permanently central in Israel. And then six, because the Jews became devout monotheists, they got upset when Jesus claimed to be God and they crucified him. It seems so dark and yet God is enacting his very purposes. God is at work in our world. Um, Believers, God is at work, working his larger purposes even today. My wife frequently reminds me of the words of John Piper, who says, God is doing a thousand things at once, and we can only understand about six of them. You know, we don't always understand God's providences, but we can be assured that he is bringing about his plan. Uh, The Hebrew title for the book of Numbers is In the Wilderness. And Robbie's been reminding us, all the preachers have, I'm taking you to the promised land. You will see my glory. You may be in the wilderness now, but I am taking you to the promised land. Uh, and it's, it's important to remember that God is at work because so often his, his ways are hidden. The Psalm 77 says that. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. So we don't always understand our journey, but we are journeying uh, to the new heavens and the new earth. And so many times God is blessing us in ways we don't understand. This week at the Wednesday prayer meeting, one of the, uh, the saintly ladies in the group prayed, Oh Lord, you are always at work even when we don't see it. You will bring about your will, your kingdom, your plan. <laughs> I said, thank you, I'll write that down for my sermon. Um, when I was an RUF campus minister, one of the foundational presuppositions of that ministry that they taught us in staff training over and over and over is God is at work. He is at work. He is building his church. We rest on him. We look for his activity. So we are wise to remember that Yahweh, the Lord, the eternal God has a plan. In the next part of uh, of the passage, we see secondly that the Lord gives us assignments on our pilgrimage. Notice some things in verses 14 through 28 about how the tribes went out. It seems like a lot of information. It seems like the same thing over and over, but there's actually some order to it. There were 12 tribes of Israel. They went out under four different standards or banners to lead them in the way as they went out. So you had the standard of the camp of Judah, the standard of Reuben, the standard of Ephraim, and the standard of Dan. So there's these four primary leaders, but each of those three, four guys takes two other tribes with him. Um, And they set out 
in the same way that the Israelites had been camped around the tabernacle. They had been camped on the east side, the south side, the west side, and the north side, and that's how they set out. They camped from the east. Uh, Judah went out first, and then south, Reuben, then west, Ephraim, and north, Dan. Um, and then you also have these other people. You have the Gershonites and the Merarites, who are Levites, and they carry the temple. The Gershonites carry the coverings and the curtains and the, and the cords, and the Merarites carry the poles and the tents and the pegs. They carry the, so one, one of them's carrying the hard stuff, one of them's carrying the soft stuff, one of them's carrying the skeleton, the other one's carrying the temple, and they go out. So Judah goes out first, and then the Gershonites and Merarites, and then you have the next three tribes, Reuben and Simeon and Gad, and then you have another group of Levites, the Kohathites, they go out in the middle between the 12 tribes, and they're carrying the holy things. They have the, the table of the showbread, the lampstand, the altars, utensils, and the curtains. They had carts to carry those things on, and so the, the thing to see is that they go out in the midst of God's people. The Gershonites and Merarites are three days ahead of them, or ahead of them, and so they already have the temple set up, and all they have to do is come put the utensils and the, the holy things in the temple, or in the tabernacle. Next is Ephraim and Manasseh and Benjamin, and lastly, the camp of Dan with Asher and Naphtali. Now, a few, a few observations. This is kind of interesting. The first two encampments are from Leah and Zilpha, uh, uh, Jacob's, Israel's first two, or his first wife and his concubine. So um, the, first, the first six tribes, the first two camps are from, are from Leah. And then the, the third camp um, is from Rachel. And the fourth camp is mixed. So that's just kind of interesting. Also interesting is this. Who goes first? The tribe of Judah. The oldest son of Leah was Reuben. But when Abraham was dying and he prophesied over all, he blessed all his children, he told Reuben that he would be judged for sins that he'd committed and that Judah was the one from whom the tribes of kings would go. So this is so fascinating. The tribe of kings go first. And beloved, Jesus Christ is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So in a small picture way, we got Jesus Christ leading the charge. Of course, he's there with the ark anyway. <laughs> but that's just interesting. Also interesting is that Ephraim takes precedence over Manasseh. They were twins, uh, born by Rachel. Manasseh was born first, Ephraim second. But God switched the order. Ephraim was going to be prevalent. And then you, lastly, you have Benjamin. Um, there are 12 leaders of the individual tribes, four leaders of the leaders. People uh, uh, have their assigned places. Some People are called to carry the tabernacle, the Levites are. This one tribe is set apart for that. So the point is this, everyone has their own assignment and, and no one is saying, no one is saying, why do we have to march like this? I don't like my place. Everybody knows where God has placed them. They set out by clans according to their father's house, according to their birth families. So this means that where they were in that march had been determined years and years before by just what family they were born into. 
And the principle is this, the Lord gives us assignments on our pilgrimage. God is sovereign over your life, believer. God is sovereign over your part in His plan. He is sovereign over the whole of your life. He is sovereign over uh, the church as well. And we see this throughout the Bible. And so in the Old Testament, at one point, Moses appoints captains over thousands and captains over hundreds and captains over fifties and captains over ten. And some people are just the people that are being captained over. Same with David's army. Captain of hundreds, captain of or thousands, captains of hundreds, and some people are just in the army. So you all have our place in life. Uh, we all have our assignment from the Lord. God is sovereign over your life. He's sovereign over your looks. He's sovereign over your height. He is sovereign over your capacities. He's sovereign over your careers. He's a sovereign over the family you were born into. God is sovereign over your life. The New Testament tells us he's sovereign over the spiritual gifts in the church and our place in the church. Some gifts are more prominent. Some are more behind the scenes, but we're all part of the body. You know, this is so important for us to accept the assignments that the Lord has given us because we're always a lot of times resisting that. We're always looking elsewhere. We want somebody else's assignment. We're, we're also prideful. We have trouble accepting our limitations. My favorite story is when my dad, my dad has a really good friend who says he went into a pants store one day and he was looking for a new pair of pants and he said, you know, I really wear a 34 waist. But I went in, I tried on a 36, it felt so good, I bought me a 38. <laughs> All you thin people in the congregation don't get that one. Um, you know, what, what happens when we uh, leave our station? When, what happens when we're not content with God's providences? Part of maturity in the Christian life is to be content in the places that God has assigned us. And what happens when we don't do that? It can have devastating consequences. We grumble and complain. We rebel against God. We grow in discontentment. Yesterday was a beautiful day. It was sunny, college football games going on, and I was working on my sermon. And I just... I'll just say one of the persons in my house, either myself or Betsy, grumbled and complained yesterday. <laughs> and if you know her, you know it was me. Uh, we, also, we also can attack other people. We can become envious. I'm reading a book called Rising Tide by John Barry that Josh recommended, and it's about the Mississippi River flood of 1927, and there were these two guys... Um, James Buchanan Eads and Andrew Atkinson Humphreys. And they were both arguing for their plan on the Mississippi River. And um, James Eads had grown up just kind of in a common family. He'd worked his way up. And, and by the time he got late in life, he was one of the He was one of the most respected engineers in the United States. I'm going to go with the I'm going to go with the pulpit mic. Is that all right, or is it fixed? 
Okay, so the other guy was Andrew Atkinson Humphreys. Andrew Atkinson Humphreys had grown up in privilege. He'd gone to the finest universities, um, and he felt entitled in life. And so these guys had competing ideas of the best way to control the Mississippi River. And Andrew Atkinson Humphreys, he just became so competitive over it. He wanted all the glory. He couldn't stand anybody else getting credit. He mercilessly attacked his opponent. Um, he, would, he would frequently just say ill things about people and try to destroy uh, Eads in every way he could. He was unpleasant to be around. And he didn't even have a good relationship with his children. He got so obsessed by his own glory, his own position. You know, we, we have that bitterness when we can't accept our station in life. What also happens? We leave our spouse of 30 years because we want something different. And that's, that's serious. But rather than growing in thankfulness for God's provision and being happy about what he has given us and praising the Lord for it, um, we do things that harm others. You know, we compare ourselves with others and we're envious. We want their stories. We want their job. We want their car. We want their families. Lord, why couldn't my situation be like theirs? But really, would you really want somebody else's story? And God has fearfully and wonderfully knit you together in your mother's womb. And he's made you just like he wants. Great illustration of being content with our station in life. Auburn years ago had a basketball player named Adrian Chiliast, and he was the sixth man on the team. He was not a starter. He would come off the bench, and he went through this period where he was scoring, you know, 10 or 12 points a game. He was really adding a ton of value to the team, and an interviewer asked him at one point in the season, well, doesn't it bother you not to be a starter? Doesn't it bother you to be the sixth man? (laughs) And he looked at the interviewer, and he said, well, if I started... Who would come off the bench? (laughs) What a great, humble answer. What a great answer of somebody saying, this is what God has assigned to me. Jesus says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yahweh, the Lord, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are the ones assigning us our part in their plans. And even our Lord Jesus, what was his part in the story? What was his earthly story? He was born in a podunk town as the son of a carpenter. He had no earthly glory. And yet, he came to be the one who would give his life for us to redeem all humanity. Certainly, there was not a more glorious life than Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, serve others and live in the life, in the areas of life that God has called you. Make your story as beautiful as you can. Be happy with your career. Be happy with your spouse, your station in life. Pursue whatever God has in front of you. You know, interestingly, C.S. Lewis, the, day bef- the, the, the week before he died, I mean, you're familiar with him, a wonderful author. Um, he said to his brother, Warney, he said, Warney, I've done all I was sent in the world to do. I'm ready to go. C.S. Lewis was a person who was content with his station in life, and he had lost a wife. Uh, So 
May it be so with us. The Lord has a plan, and he's working out that plan in human history. The Lord gives us assignments on our pilgrimage. And then thirdly, the Lord wants us to invite others on this pilgrimage. You may not have noticed that, but in verse 29 through 32, interestingly, Moses says to Hobab, the son of Reuel, also named Jethro, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we are setting out for the place of which Yahweh said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do good to you. Hobab was a Midianite. He knew the land. He knew the area. Moses wanted him to come with them. And uh, Moses sees him there and invites him to join them. And he seeks to persuade him. And I love this sentence. He says, come with us and we will do good to you. For the Lord has promised good to Israel. And believers in Christ, we ought to be saying that same thing. Interestingly, Hobab refuses Moses at first. It's unclear whether he goes. Some other places indicate that he may have. He refuses him at first. And Moses says, we need your eyes and ears. Some people are concerned that Moses was displaying a lack of faith because he wants a guide to go through the desert with them. But didn't he already have God? Didn't he already have the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire? Didn't he already have God guiding him? Well, um, that's probably not the best way to think of that. Even though God was guiding them, Hobab would still know where there were nearby pastures, places of water, uh, where uh, there would be shade, where all those kind of things could be obtained. So um, Moses appeals to him to go. Um, But the main point of Moses' appeal is this. Come with us, and we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to Israel. That was what was in Moses' mind as he was heading toward the promised land. The Lord has promised good to Israel. Um, You know, the gospel is in the Old Testament. There's promises of God's grace, promises of God's favor, promises of his presence, and Moses was acting out of those promises and that gospel and that good news And he sees this man, and he doesn't want to leave him in the wilderness. Um, And so we should ask ourselves this. If if Moses, who was going to the promised land, understood this, how much more should we in the New Testament? How much more should we as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, if those who have been saved by him, who knows so much more of the story. Moses was going to the promised land, which we later find out was only just a shadow of a greater reality. It's the, it's the new heavens and the new earth, God's new creation that the whole of the Bible points to. And we know that. And we know how to get there. We know it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And as, and as Christians, we know how much good the Lord has done to us. In Ephesians 1, it says that he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus. In him, we have redemption through his blood. In him, we have adoption and sonship. In him, we have forgiveness of all our sins. In him, we know the mind and man and plan of God. In him, we've been given the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. So how much richer and a fuller experience do we have than they did? And how much more so should we be looking at the people around us and saying, come with us, and we will do good to you, for the Lord has promised good to those who believe. 
you know, we, we live among a people who are sinking their roots here. We live among a people that don't know the Lord, that are setting up those tent, their tents here, and they want to make their permanent dwelling place here. And they say, I will find all my good in this life. I want to put my trust here and sink my roots here. These people are like the woman at the well. They think there's life somewhere outside of Jesus. And we want to say, no, there's a, there's a better place. Come with us. You need the Lord to do good to your soul. You need forgiveness and peace. You need to know your creator. Plus, we know that all men are in the image of God, and they're created for fellowship with him, and that ultimately they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that heaven and hell are eternal, eternal realities. And so we want to say, come with us. Leave the wilderness. Knowing what it is to fear the Lord, we persuade men. The love of Christ constrains us. We've experienced the gospel. And so we want to say it out loud to others. Come with us. You know, I didn't say this before, but my son Henry had already been to the frying pan and the roaring fork and caught a ton of fish. And that's why he called me and my other son and said, hey, y'all come. And it is we who have experienced the grace and love and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ who need to be saying, come with us. Okay, now lastly, the last thing we see in this passage is this. The Lord is with us on our pilgrimage. And I'll just briefly on that. We see in this passage that as they set out, the ark of the Lord goes before them. The cloud is over the ark and the ark symbolizing God's very presence, goes with them as they set out. And then we have this interesting prayer. Whenever the ark sets out, Moses says, Arise, O Yahweh, and let your enemies be scattered. That might seem harsh, but you know, they were going through a wilderness. They had people that didn't want them in their land. They were going to God's promised land, and they were going there because they were God's people. And Moses is saying, Lord, we need you to go with us. Uh, and, the, and the cloud of Yahweh was over them by day whenever they went, whenever they set out from the camp. Some people think the cloud of, uh, of, of the Lord was over the ark, but some other commentators think the cloud was over all the people as they went. Uh, I'm not sure. Robbie will straighten that out next week. Um, so they, they, they set out, and Moses is saying these things, and he says, Lord, let your enemy be scattered and then, it, and then it, when the, when the um, ark rests, he says, return, O Yahweh, to the ten thousands of Israel. And the, and the point is this. As we go on this pilgrimage, we have God's guidance, we have God's protection, and we have God's very presence with us. So take heart, uh, believer. We see these same things kind of uh, said in the New Testament. The Lord is with us. Jesus said to us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have defeated Satan. I have defeated the last enemy, death. And so as we close, uh, we just want to say that 
they had a shadowy Old Testament picture, how much more so us. God is taking us to the new heavens and the new earth. That was purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, by, his, by him giving his body and his blood, his very life for us. Uh, as the song we're going to sing in a minute says, Therefore, we walk by faith and keep our eyes on him. And the Lord has given us this table to help us keep our eyes on him. So let's pray as we go to the table. Heavenly Father,